Anna Green Gables, she got revenge when Gilbert kept calling her carrots. She smashed that uh, writing board, that blackboard, that thing over his head. Slate. Yeah. Slate, thank you. Guess we know who's the more hardcore fan. Don't you win. <laughs> but who referenced it in this section? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sussan Nagash um, in San Diego, San Diego State University. Today, Sussan is going to bring us a conversation about the House of Dragons and, drumroll please, revenge. Then, in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss an academic article, First Time Fathers Show Longitudinal Gray Matter Cortical Volume Reductions, rolls right off my tongue, evidence from two international samples. And then, in good or bad advice, um, we'll talk about some social media tweets and Instagram posts that some of our listeners sent in. If you have advice, speaking of, that you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all at attachedpodcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, please consider rating and reviewing. It really helps us out, get the message out. And also, if you uh, would love to, go to our Patreon page and consider becoming a member. Great show lined up today. But before we get to all of that goodness, how are you guys doing? Talk to me. What's new? What's old? What's hip? No, not what's hip. Yeah, not if we're asking me to report <laughs> specifically. It's not going to happen. I will share, uh, I am currently first in my fantasy football league. <gasps> yeah. Um, or rather was until about one week ago. Oh. I know when I lost to uh, the last place team. I know. Which was? The last place um, team is? The last place team was my brother's fiance. Oh. Uh, she'd come out strong at the start of the season, then had a few really rough games, and then I lost to her. And I should have seen that coming. Sorry, I think I, I misunderstood. I thought a team was like an actual NFL team. I have no idea how this works. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. Yeah, no, Go it's on. fantasy. It's all invented. It's fake football. Fantasy. I'm the coach of a fake football team. Yeah, imaginary. <laughs> and there's no money riding on this. We don't pay into it. It's surely for bragging rights. The problem is I've used those bragging rights liberally for several weeks um, <laughs> and claimed it was just That's a game true. of statistics. So obviously I am crushing everybody and then uh, no longer lost my crown oh. and I'm no longer in first place. And um, so we're just going to focus on the first portion of the half. season yeah, and yeah. Eh, it's not even half I, I i made it i'm not even sure i'm i think i made it four weeks <laughs> but there's still like time right like you can recover right sure well oh. yeah i was really looking for that clean record though oh. i was so proud aren't of myself. we all are we all yeah. looking for a clean record yeah i was <laughs> suggesting to my parents they could even check in with my brothers about how they were doing 
because I had destroyed them both and <laughs> not anymore. So that's how I'm doing. Well, here is to a recovery and like a bounce back. Thanks. They call it recovery. I it. I'm not actually sure. I don't know. I've never been in second place before. Just kidding. I probably was last year. <laughs> well, congratulations on the first four weeks. Thanks. Susan, what's up with you? How's it going? Tell us stories. Oh, gosh. It has been um, busy several weeks. You know, I feel like I haven't um, had a lot of eventful stuff happen, but I guess I could speak to um, my efforts to try to be a gardener. I am. Um, yeah, it's not going so well. I, I love gardening I, efforts always, here. I really thought when I purchased my first home, I would be all about the garden and constantly in the backyard and front yard, just, you know, tilling, yeah. doing the things tilling? that people do. Yeah. Is that what they call it? I, I don't know. It is <laughs> one thing garden lingo and see if that would carry me through, but it's not working. The little I know is... <laughs> I have all the equipment and even the apron for it, but I still don't have. You bought the outfit. Oh, right, right, it's right. always where I start. I always start with an outfit and hoping it inspires me, right? Um, I love but it. But it tends to be something that just ends up on offer up. Um, <laughs> so this outfit I'm keeping because I'm perfectly I'm clean, by the way. It's still perfectly clean when she gives it away uh, from all the tilling. I, <laughs> from all the tilling I'm doing. I have gotten a little better, um, but I share in the responsibility with my husband, who's much better at, you know, being patient with like mm, plants, things growing and, you know, and I'm just like, it didn't grow. It must be dead. Let's replace it. And he's like, okay, like that's not how it works. Just give it some time. And I think I don't have the patience for gardening. I really yeah. think that's what it comes down to. I don't mind getting in the dirt. I don't mind finding a worm here or there, but I don't have the patience for the slow. Yeah. Growth, right. And yeah. so, um, I don't That's know. Why I we'll got see. out of therapy. I mean, being a therapist, it was, <laughs> didn't have the patience for it. It's amazing. The slow growth. Can, yeah. The slow growth. I, it's amazing where I can be <laughs> fine with incremental growth or where in the places I can't seem to stand it. Um, but I think when there is physical like labor involved, I just want to see yeah, something. Yeah, immediate. But yeah, I, yeah. I think I'm getting there. I think I'm getting a little more patient. I'm definitely mindful of the seasons and how that contributes. Given that I live in San Diego, there's always <laughs> sun. So I assume the sun is out, the water's Sure. There. Come on, what are you doing? <laughs> Why aren't you growing? What do you grow in San Diego? Um... We don't tend to grow a lot of foliage. Like we don't do a lot of plants that, you know, require a lot of water, a lot of sure. you know, well, water tolerance. Um, yeah. And uh, I think okay. that one thing that does have foliage is our Mexican salvia. We have Mexican Russian salvia. Oh, that makes sense. And so those ones they're rooted do really well, but they are also really temperamental if, they're, if they don't really <laughs> fit in well with the soil that we have. Um, but I used to do succulents a lot. And I was a big yeah. fan of succulents because succulents are really robust and, you know, they can handle a lot and they grow pretty fast. So I think in different conditions too. So I would say, and I don't do vegetables because I've miserably failed at that. That disappoints you every time. Every time. Unless you're Patricia. No, unless, <laughs> unless you're Patricia's husband. Your I don't do any of it. No, I've seen you, you know do the work, freeze the food. It's you all could yeah, eat a freeze. family of 50 if you had to with the, yeah. with the group stuff. You do the work. You have to know that the growing aspect isn't me. It's my husband. 
who ha- literally has a PhD in crop sciences. Like, it's not like it feels like something you could just me. pick up, though. I agree. You know I agree. I, agree. <laughs> I mean, people did pick it up for centuries and centuries, right, right. Uh, millennia, some may say. Yeah, right. But I think you have a good balance there. You love to cook. You love to take, you know, what you grow and do something with it. If I have like something random growing out of the vegetables I grow, I'll disregard it because I don't trust it. I grew it. it. I can't trust it. The metaphor of what this gardening experience is is like. I don't trust it. I grew it. I don't trust it. it. It's growing funny. I must have done something. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot of self-efficacy here. It's very, I don't trust that I actually can do this work. Maybe that's the core of the problem. Yeah, (laughs) I think we found it. Years of therapeutic work. Nope, just be a host attached. We'll find a bunch of fruitless tilling and, oh, unlocked. (laughs) Oh my gosh, so funny. Um, We're not, well, I guess we're planting with we're that we should always be in quotes. We're planting winter crops right now in our garden. Um, but the fall, beautiful crisp air here in East Tennessee. Leaves are changing colors in the Smoky Mountains. Fall, you know what that means. Apples? Anna Green Gables. Um, so I'm so excited, Anna Green Gables season. Um, it's on my to-do list. I haven't done it yet, but I'm anticipating it. I've seen a lot of like Me memes and reels and TikToks of Anne and Green Gables. So I think in the next week or so, I'm really just going to dig in for a solid, is it 12 hours of Anna Green think, Gables and of Avonlea? I think it's 12 hours. I was going to yes. say 16, but I think it depends on where you stop. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. do the continuing story. One. I don't either. So um, just good for them for getting that cash and doing that third one. Um, but I'm just going to stick with the duo of Anna Green Gables and of Avonlea. And then that's all for me. Um, but gosh, I'm excited about that. A nice bottle of wine, day drinking, two days in a row. I can't do it in one day. I'll do it in two days. No, I won't drink all day. I'll just like drink in the evening. Um, really get in to Anna Green Gables. That's what I'm looking forward to. Sesson, remember the first time you saw Anna Green Gables? Yeah, I was both so happy and so mad at you because I couldn't do my work. I was like, I have to watch this thing. <laughs> I was so confused by how much I loved it. <laughs> it was very hard to reconcile that, but I am grateful for you introducing me to it. I can't wait to introduce it to Dre. I don't think he's there yet at six, but. I've tried it a few times with mine and quickly. I mean, within 20 minutes, I'm like, you're not appreciating it to the level I need you to. We'll try again in a few years. <laughs> so this one's for me. Uh, it's not going to be a family thing. So yeah, this is me on my laptop, just fully immersed in it. Um, yeah, I, that's one of the ways Sarah and I also bonded was I was like, oh my gosh, you know Anna Green Gables? She was like, do I know it? <laughs> Oh, so you came in as like an equal, maybe, sure. in that understanding of that character. Yeah, but I don't think we figured this out until maybe a year or two ago. Oh. Like it was a while into our relationship mm-hmm. that sort we were just like- core personality first feature. First kind of uh, <laughs> First research day. All of my future research collaborations, first two questions are, have you seen Anna Green Gables and do you love it? Yes. Next question, Pride and Prejudice 2015 mm-hmm. or the 90s, mm-hmm. 2005, sorry. If they say the 90s version, we're going to have to have a conversation. Oh. It's 2005 all the way. That's right. The Karen Knightley version? 100%. Yes. No question. All the way. 100%. Over the 90s version. Yes. I will fight you on this. 
<laughs> I have seen neither, so I can't contribute. Oh. Okay. Well, it's, next time I see you, Seth, I guess I know what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, first up, popping culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sasson, what you got for us on the docket today? So um, today I'm going to talk about a little show no it's not little at all it's a big, big show <laughs> a little almost. unheard show oh i was gonna say you know some of us have heard of it um hbo's wildly popular show house of the dragon um it's captured the attention i believe of millions of people um that's what hbo does it creates these hit shows and interestingly enough um you know i've never watched the game of thrones uh, I did start watching it the last season, um, which was Just probably diving in there right at the end. I did right the same. At the end. Yeah. I really, yeah. I'm not sure what I do. I go back. I don't know. I was really nah, interested. It wasn't worth it. I was like, yeah, it's probably not. Now that I have this other show to watch, of course, I don't think it is. Um, but the show is a prequel to Game of Thrones, and um, it's based on George um, Martin's film or book. Um, series Fire and Blood, and it's set 200 years um, before the events um, in Game of Thrones, um, which is why you don't see any of the characters from Game of Thrones in the show. And it tells you the story of the house of Targaryen. And mm -hmm. the central theme is really secession. It's about power um, and the throne and its central characters are really um, focused on you know, trying to make sure that their house um, sort of is in the lead or um, sort of in front of the throne. And it's a lot of focus on power and name recognition in terms of families. Um, so I didn't think I would be really interested in it, but I'm really captivated by the acting and um, just some of the very strange storylines in some ways, admittingly, it's not for everyone, but it's captured my attention anyhow. Um, and it's really centered on like capturing, I think throughout the series, I haven't read the book, um, but it's focused on like, you know, preparing us for this great civil war that happens within this family and, and how it unfolds over the years. So in a recent episode that I watched, um, there was a scene um, sort of focused on an eye for an eye kind of experience, literally. Um, oh. So literally. Not metaphorically. I don't know that I want to spoil it for people, but during the Fair scene, um, it was really focused on somebody losing an eye and then the family on the other side wanted revenge and wanted the eye of the family member for the eye of their family member. So um, real Romeo and Juliet situation. here. Yeah. Which in and of itself, it would have been just one thing to watch that. But I had just recently also started watching this movie called The North Man um, oh, with Alexander Skarsgård. Yes, and Nicole Kidman and some other um, really up and coming actors. But it, it's a Viking movie, which is really very, uh, you know, if you Norse. watch Viking, yeah, it's a lot of violence, a lot of like senseless violence. Um, I didn't actually finish it. I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. But the whole plot is based, it's a revenge plot. Okay, the whole movie. And so 
I'm watching this revenge movie thinking it's so much revenge. And then I'm watching this House of the Dragon and it's like an eye for an eye. Yeah, <laughs> revenge. Reminded, like, gosh, I watch a lot of things that are about revenge. <laughs> um, as a viewer, I mean, I just came to realize that a lot of our shows are centered on the idea of revenge, mm. right? Like, especially some of the darker shows, I think that often capture our attention. You're right. That's a really good point. Um, so it left me wondering, like, why does revenge sort of capture our attention? Mm. And why do we see it as a form of entertainment? I think that's a bigger question. But, um, you know, and also, what does the science say about how engaging in revenge impacts our actual wellness and relationships, especially? Like, I'm just curious, because we watch all of this. I'm thinking somehow we're inputting messages about, like, what revenge does for us you know, how satisfying it could be or gratifying, right? Is it cathartic? To, is it helpful? But I was also thinking like, gosh, I wonder what it does to relationships. Of course, on one level, like we could guess, right? Like it's not good. Mm. But I'm just curious what the science is behind it because I really don't think I come across a lot of science um, research on revenge. revenge. Um, you know, a lot I think about like, we have a lot of statistics on outcomes I think, but we don't see like, what are the motivators around like mm. people's behavior? And I think revenge mm. is sometimes one that we should be looking at. Um, so, I mean, it's difficult again, to calculate the number of crimes committed, for example, um, in revenge, right? Especially when you look um, at like, we don't look a lot about at criminal motivation in the research. Um, but there was a recent article that I found um, by Clemente and Espinoza in 2021 article that stated this specifically, most homicides are motivated by revenge. Revenge oh. is an ever-present, long-lasting phenomenon that may be construed as a health problem, considering its consequences for victims and perpetrators. And it sometimes is executed years after um, the event that triggered it has finished, right? And sort of attached to that article was, um, a reference to another article by Boone et al. in 2019 that says revenge is prevalent in couple relationships and over 90% of people in a couple relationship report getting even, right? Getting even in the past with their partners. 90%? What? Yes. Yeah. I did not admittingly go back and look to see how they <laughs> statistics on that. Um, but I did, you know, as a couples therapist, as someone who studies relationships, I do often see a lot of reactivity in relationships and it's really yeah. this immediate response is like, you harmed me, I'm going to harm you, right? Which is mm. sort of the spirit behind revenge is like, I have to seek some kind of justice for, you know, for getting hurt or for being harmed. And so, you know, I think given how reactive we are when we are hurt, I think it, I'm not surprised that a lot of people do the tit for tat, eye for an eye kind of um, engage in that kind of behavior. Um, so the challenge with, uh, I think rectifying like an injustice is that yeah. the definition of justice can vary from person to person, but more importantly, I think just because one seeks revenge does not mean, um, a person understands what they did wrong or is remorseful for their actions. I oh, think yeah. that's an important consideration. And so that being said, I did find a study too, by German psychologists, um, scientists, Mario, and I apologize for butchering this name. Uh, goal Zinner, which suggests that people don't feel better after seeking revenge mm. unless the avenger knows that the offender is aware of and understands the harm. 
that they cause. So it's not Even just revenge helps them feel good. Is that what you're advising? That- no, no, I, I think there's <laughs> let her get to her point. Don't engage in revenge and also you know focus on them understanding why you sought revenge. Like we're not promoting revenge, but people <laughs> okay. did engage in revenge, you know, avenge right something that happened um in their lives or to someone that they love, you know, they didn't feel better because they did right. it, right? Like they often would say like, unless somebody understands why they did it, it wouldn't feel good, right? And often people who feel like you did something out of revenge to them, they're not going to seek understanding anyway. So it's, right. it's not the way to go. It's right? unlikely to repair a relationship <laughs> it's if it's not. a tit for tat. No one, Escalation. people don't say you hurt, like, wow, you sought revenge on me. And now I'm going to try to understand why you did. Really, that's not how the right. conclusion works. I don't that think I've ever heard that phrase before. No, that's not the we're not <laughs> promoting how to do that. But how do you find that way? No, it's really like you harm me, I harm you, and now I'm going to harm you back. Right? It, it usually is. It's really cyclical in that way. So, yeah, it sounds like the amount of revenge uh, scripted television and movies might be a reflection of the amount of it that actually exists in society, but it's not healthy. Yes, it is not healthy. It is, okay, it is I think, <laughs> should have probably started there. Um, I mean, I am talking about no. the science, so it's not- No, it's true. Way. No, 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 we're here for it. <laughs> but I do think that there's something about how much we take in as consumers that we have to be mindful of how we are making sense of what revenge does for us. Like, are we on some level looking at revenge as the way to- um, rectify harm and hurt in our lives? Or are we aware enough to say like, okay, that's exaggerated, you know, that's entertainment. I know better than to think revenge is something that is actually going to be helpful to me or make me feel better or create some, especially, you know, balance the scales at all, because it clearly does not do that. I, we, we could definitely say from a lot of different research and, you know, our work as clinicians, that that does not um, help one feel better about something that has happened to them, um, let alone repair relationships. Yeah. So what is your recommendation if you feel like you want to do revenge? What is a better way than- uh, Or if you're looking to get to the throne specifically. Oh. What's your- <laughs> yeah, you can talk to Charles about this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We have a real life- Queen Elizabeth died of natural causes, you guys. Of old age. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know that was a diagnosis, but yes. Um, so I think, well, honestly, when I was looking at this, I was more thinking like, gosh, I hope we're not sensitized to believe like, or mm. to think like, this is the way you respond to being mm-hmm. harmed or hurt. Like yesterday's scene, I think they clearly sort of clarified, right? Within the episode too, like that was probably not the way to go about seeking revenge yeah, not taking someone's eye yeah right like they weren't promoting that clearly yeah. but i was watching that northman movie and then i think about all the other movies that are really based on the revenge plot i'm thinking like we sure really do think like mm-hmm. in our society like yeah. that's what we see and, and well if we also works. think about anna green gables she got revenge when gilbert kept calling her carrots she smashed that uh writing board that blackboard that thing over his head yeah. Slate, thank you. Guess we know who's the more hardcore fan. Don't you win. <laughs> but who referenced it in this section? <laughs> <laughs> I 
at least you. one Anna Green Gables reference every episode this season. That's the one. <laughs> that's <laughs> goal set and accepted. <laughs> so I don't know if I have any questions for you this week about it, to be honest. I just wanted to share like my reaction to like having sort of just no. been saturated by revenge plots. I was like, oh my goodness, like what's going on? Why am I entertained by this? And what does it mean? Like, you know, as somebody who knows better than to think revenge is the way to go, why am I finding entertainment in that? But I think that's also a take-home message for a lot of the entertainment that we do consume, that it's okay to be entertained by it. Just know that it's probably not always the healthiest way to execute your own relationships. Execute is the wrong term there, but you know what I mean? Um, Because I mean, I also, I'm a sucker and we've talked about this on the podcast so many times. I'm a sucker for rom-coms and cheesy rom-coms. I love it so much. They're cheesy and fantastic, but I also know it's not the best relationship uh, setup. Uh, People do not frequently, it's not a good expectation that you're going to fall in love in six uh, days um, and then live, have one fight and then end up happily ever after after six days. You know, it's just not uh, healthy expectations for relationships, but I still enjoy the heck out of it. So I think that that's also a similar message here. It's okay to enjoy revenge. Just know maybe it's not the best way to enact your relationships. Now we're going to move to our academic deep dive segment and discuss a new research article on first time dads and specifically how the brain of these fathers uh, might change during the transition to parenthood. And a new cerebral cortex article titled First Time Fathers Show Longitudinal Gray Matter Cortical Volume Reductions Evidence from Two International Samples. Authors from Madrid and Barcelona, including doctors Magdalena Martinez Garcia, Maria Pantania Dia, Sofia Cardenas, Oscar Villarroya, Manuel Desco, Susana Carmona, and Dr. Darby Saxby at USC, collaborated to explore how the parenting experience may affect neuroplasticity. Our brains adapt to our context and are shaped by our life experiences, stress, culture, and learning new skills. Becoming a new parent is an enormous new experience. And although dads have become increasingly involved in parenting over the last 50 years, neurobiological research on brain changes associated with transitioning to parenthood have focused almost exclusively on moms. Structural Magnetic Resonance Imaging, or as we all probably know it, MRI studies, have found structural changes in new mom's brains across two neural areas that are related to parenting behavior. Subcortical structures, including the hippocampus and amygdala, for example, which promote being vigilant to infant crying uh, and are tied to mom's motivation to attach to their infants. Changes are also seen in cortical areas involved in understanding social relationships and responding to infants' needs appropriately. However, focusing on imaging mom's brains limits our ability to understand what changes in the brain may be related directly to pregnancy versus 
changes that are associated with the experience of becoming a first-time parent. It also limits our ability to adequately support moms and dads as they experience this transition. So without being too cheesy, I gotta say my gray matter um, is dying to learn what these authors uh, found. Sarah, to you. Mm-hmm. So I was super excited about the study. I think I messaged you a few weeks ago, uh, Patricia, when I saw this sort of oh my first God, we're all such and I nerds. was like, I know, oh but it's gosh. such cool research. It um, and it is very directly tied to what we like to talk about on Attached in terms of how relationships shape our lives and how we shape our relationships, right? So these researchers work together uh, to specifically look at these neuroanatomic changes that occur in the brain for first-time dads in the transition to becoming fathers. Um, and what they predicted was that dads would show changes in the brain that affect the cortex more so than the subcortex. So that subcortex is that area that Patricia, you just described as tied to um, more limbic areas in the brain that are below the cortex. They're more basic brain structures mm. related to sort of older parenting behaviors that we observe in mammals. Um, the authors predicted that those areas are potentially more likely to change in moms because they're impacted by pregnancy hormones and biologically embedded, uh, which may be more relevant for biological moms than for dads versus changes in the cortex, which is a uh, sort of latest evolving structure of the brain, the part of the brain that is involved in attention and planning and executive functioning and um, the cortical networks that are more closely related to uh, learned social and cultural parenting processes. So they especially were interested in this part of the cortex known as the default mode network, which is involved in mentalizing or this ability that we have as humans to reflect on and make sense of our own mental states, what we're thinking and feeling, but also our ability to reflect on and recognize what other people are thinking and feeling and how those mental states are tied to our behavior. So it's the structures involved in empathy and emotion regulation and being able to sort of understand what another person needs and respond to that. So they predicted that for dads who are engaged in parenting but not the pregnancy process directly, this may be more likely to be where we see changes in the brain when we become fathers. So they prospectively imaged cohabiting first-time right-handed fathers' brains okay. before and after the transition of fatherhood. So in the lab that was based in Spain, they collected MRI images from 20 dads before partners' pregnancies, and then again, two to three months postpartum. They also had a control group of 17 childless men mm. who, over the course of the study, didn't have children, were not intending to have children, etc. Okay. In the California-based lab, they also scanned 20 dads starting in mid to late pregnancy and then again seven to eight months postpartum. So there's some overlap in the time period of where these two labs imaged dads, and also they did this across the transition to becoming fathers for the first time. So what they were looking at were changes in volumes of the brain related to the cortex and subcortex. So they okay. looked at, so when you've seen like a picture of a brain, right, there's all sort of those like bumps and grooves and wrinkles, yeah, right? Sure. Yeah. So they're looking at the volume of those bumps and grooves on the surface of the brain. That's the cortex. Okay. Um, they also looked at the volume of gray matter that was specific to the subcortex regions that they were really interested in. 
Um, they also looked at the change and thickness of the cortex, the surface area, and specific functional networks that were affected by changes in the cortex. So okay. the visual network, limbic network, which would be tied to emotion, etc. So what they found, as predicted, were that first-time fathers displayed reductions in the volume of their cortex, um, which was especially a decrease in cortical thickness for dads who are in the Spanish study and decrease in cortex surface area for dads studied in California and volume reductions in the default mode network that they were especially interested in that mentalizing process. So when we're using parts of our brain to think and reflect on people's other emotions and others' uh, thought processes, we see reductions in the brain volume. Oh, so reductions me is a good thing. It is a good thing. Okay. Because reductions proposing... inherently we think, oh, that's not good. I but know. in and brain functioning... The... Or yes. this measurement of brain, it's good. Yes. So they, uh, some of the headlines talked about like shrinkage, like brain shrink. I'm yeah. like, I'm pretty sure that's, I don't think that's necessarily how these authors talked about this, but um, they did find like significant volume reductions in the visual network. And also for Spanish dads, but only Spanish dads, the dorsal attention network, which is a part of the brain that is related to goal-directed attention. Uh, they did not find changes in the cortex of childless men. Um, mm. And these changes weren't associated with age. And then also, as predicted, subcortical volume did not change within the groups. That older sort of set of brain oh. structures that we do see change in the brains of new moms were not observed to change for these new dads. And so what these authors are talking about, um, much like you just described, Patricia, is that these brain circuits are positively adapting to parenthood mm. and the caregiver role. So these changes support dads being able to understand their child's needs and emotions and respond with care and empathy and adapt to the mental and emotional demands of parenting. Um, of we which have there all been first-time moms, and it is an intense experience. Um, and the changes in the visual network, they were sort of surprised by. They wondered if that may relate to some other research findings that suggest that dads um, may have better performance in visual memory tasks, that uh, it may relate to dads' abilities to recognize their infants, respond accordingly, oh, which may make sense, especially if babies are not speaking. We're needing to use our visual oh. attention, our visual processing more. You know, uh, my husband is really good at finding things when they get lost. Oh, that's so sweet. Like I don't know keys. if that's a memory thing or a visual thing. Oh, I assumed it was a visual thing, but you're right. It could be a memory thing. <laughs> it could be either. It could be both. Let's give him credit. It's both. It's uh, the first time he had a baby. He was all of a sudden like, burr, 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 burr. I can just zoomed in. <laughs> and that positive adaptation to parenthood and the caregiver role, that those brain volume reductions are really reflective of our brains refining, right, mm. and specializing, becoming more efficient. We see this at other periods of life. The authors point to adolescence where we see our brains sort of start to remove redundancies mm -hmm. that we don't need as we develop and grow. Um, and that this becoming more efficient and refining these parts of the brain that are really potentially very um, specifically tied to parenting tasks, this new skill mm -hmm. set that we're learning is um, may help dads to be more sensitive to babies' needs, um, which I just love this framing of one way of how our relationships remodel and shape us. And yeah. in this study, literally changed the shapes of our brains. We could see how dads were adapting to this over time through these MRI images. 
it is a small sample. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, I think it's on the larger size for MRI MRIs. studies. Yeah, I was thinking uh, that too. And I can't imagine the resources it takes actually to do these kind of imaging research. Uh, and they found that the volume reductions were different from zero, but not significantly different from childless men. Uh, so there is potentially um, something to be said about their having you know, more time. I, my understanding is these researchers continue to do this work um, and uh, with more brains, more images to be looking at, they'll have more ability to detect these changes. Um, but I think it's really very interesting. I, I think um, capturing parenting quality and how engaged dads are to look at whether that's tied to variation in changes in the brain, not just sort of the fact that they did transition to parenthood because they didn't capture the parent-child relationship quality as part of the study. Uh, but they did sort of suggest that potentially they may have seen some unique changes in the Spanish sample that may, for example, be tied to more generous paternity leave policies in Spain. Oh, interesting. Right? I mean, what a brilliant hypothesis. I mean, that, but also uh, it totally makes sense if you're allowed yes. to spend more time with your infant. You're going you're to see more, more change. change. Uh-huh. It absolutely makes sense. So overall, I mean, what I think is um, very interesting is that these changes are smaller. They're less distinct than brain changes, volume reductions we would see in biological moms brains over the course of transitioning to motherhood but that is potentially tied to these pregnancy hormones and also less variation in what we expect from moms in terms of caregiving right um but becoming a parent it's just a huge enormous change and a really big opportunity for growth and understanding dad brain uh, could really help us understand kids and how to support families better yeah how to support families better i really like that um a whole lot i always appreciate and love research that demonstrates how um, our brains can change in adulthood you know like that we're not plastic yeah the plasticity of it uh, Mm -hmm. is just always so remarkable and just gives me so so much hope and like I know that that's not what these authors were uh, trying to do but this type of research just gives me hope that like even in adulthood we can change and on a very basic level including our brain um so that's so cool. i mean i think it is what they were trying to do right i mean i think okay. that's yeah they're looking at the adaptation process in families and what this looks like at a neural level uh i'm obsessed with this work i think it's very very cool it's interesting to put out there in terms of thinking about how dads or maybe soon to be dads or thinking about being a dad like how men in particular sometimes don't know that they're up for the challenge, right? Or up for the the task. And so it's like, there's that hesitancy. Can I do this? Can I actually step in? And I think for some, it's actually a reason why they don't, right? Like they they don't have that sense of confidence, that self-efficacy that they could do the job. And so they're not actually investing that time and effort to see this as, you know, like there's science to show that when you put that time and effort, your brain will adapt, your brain will change. And I think it gives people maybe... And some hope to think like, okay, I just need to sort of actually engage in the parenting act, right? Mm-hmm. And my brain will support me in that. And, and that validates I- you're learning something new. This is a new skill set. Yeah. Parenting is mm-hmm. not just inherent. It's not just no. innate. Yes. And it's such important work that your brain reshapes itself to accommodate learning that new skill. How I mean, it's so valuable. I totally agree. Yeah, I support that. Mm-hmm. Really cool. Woo-hoo! Boo! Woo-hoo! Yeah! 
finally time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, family, and friends. We see advice about how to be or not to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on all the social medias, blogs, numerous top 10 lists. The World Wide Web is full of it. But a lot of it just actually isn't good for our relationships, believe it or not. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice uh, that you'd like us to talk about, please send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on the Twitters, the Instagrams, the Facebooks, all of those things at Attached Podcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, as always, please kindly rate and review the podcast um, and subscribe as well if you want to. That'd be cool. Also, we always have a bonus good or bad advice for our Patreon subscribers. If you want that bonus content, please kindly become a member at patreon.com slash attached. So today we're going to venture into social media and talk about some advice from Twitter and Instagram that was sent to us. Um, this first one is from at I am Tabitha Brown. Are you guys ready? Okay, good. Being blood related doesn't make you family. Actions, respect, and love for each other make you family. All right, what are we thinking? Good or bad advice? Woods? Uh yeah, I think that is good advice. I think um, being blood related is one very basic way to define family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not even a necessary way to define family, but it's certainly not sufficient. Mm. Uh, I think that a really important way we define family are uh, cultures and customs and connections and we can be blood related to people and be considered maybe legally family and not choose to find these people as um, people we want to stay connected to necessarily in adulthood. Um, But it's much more uh, than being related by blood. There are lots of people who are family and that people consider to be family without any blood relationship whatsoever. I think that's good advice. Good advice from Woods. Sasson, what are you thinking? Good or bad advice? Well, I think it's good advice in the way that uh, Sarah's describing the one side of it where we expand our definition of family to include people who we care for and care for us, right? So we don't, and I think that is exactly how I experienced it as well. Also, I wonder, however, that other part of that statement being family is about, I think you said respect, um, I can't remember. Love for each other. Respect and love for each other make you family. Actions, respect, and love. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the love part makes sense, but I do think there are a lot of people out there who would, if under that definition, probably say there are a lot of people who are blood related that they don't consider family because Mm -hmm. not everyone extends each other respect nor do they always feel like they're putting love out there into the relationship but they are still family. And mm. I think the reasons they don't do it as frequently, you know, express love or respect might vary. And sometimes it's cultural. When you look at how love is communicated and expressed, how respect is, you know, expressed and experienced, it may be culturally, 
based, right? So I wouldn't say that if you're not experiencing those things, that person is not family. I think mm-hmm. sometimes you have to really work harder to mm-hmm. feel connected to those particular family members yeah. when those things are not there, but it doesn't mean they're not family either, right? I think perhaps mm-hmm. how much you let them in and open up to them and be vulnerable or, you know, take in that relationship, of course, will depend on how you're treated. But um, I'm mindful that it could also suggest that you're writing off people who, who oh. don't um, do those things. Or yeah. Don't express things. Yeah, I think the caveat is important. We're hearing a resounding good advice. I can also see how this kind of advice is really helpful for like a coping mechanism, maybe for family members who have been very toxic in your life. And so just remembering that, you know, you could choose the family, but also within that, uh, I don't want anybody to read this advice and think that um, it minimizes the negative impact that sometimes toxic family mm-hmm. relationships can have um, on you. It, those are still very valid and very, very real. Um, but yes, overall, very, very good advice. Yeah, I think it's like that idea, like if these things are not happening, the respect, the love, you have to set really clear boundaries, but not yeah. cut them off, right? Yeah. Like there's that cutoff that people do. It's like, you're not family anymore because you, you mm-hmm. do these things. Mm-hmm. And there's also these really clear boundaries that could it also mean that you create space from your from that person, but. Yeah, and sometimes that might look like cut off eventually if the person doesn't respect boundaries, but. Um, Overall, I think we're agreeing this is really, really good advice. Just the background of maybe when people get there, just being mindful of that as well. Okay, so next, um, advice from the Washington State Department of Natural Resources, a really common source of relationship advice. Um, Advice for dating and mushroom harvesting. Don't ignore the toxic traits just because they're a fun guy to be around like fungus fun guy get it i love it it's good uh good or bad advice woods what are your thoughts Uh, i mean mushrooms are pretty much the only thing i can grow accidentally so (laughs) (laughs) if you're about to suggest i should also rip those out um yeah no you don't eat them (laughs) no don't worry about that we don't need anything from my backyard uh i think that is excellent advice, actually. Even though the source is unusual, uh, we definitely don't want to trade off uh, fun and um, enjoyment or entertainment uh, with pretending that somebody's toxic traits don't exist. That's no good. I think it's good advice and adorable. Good advice and adorable from Wood Sasson. I agree. Um... For sure. I think uh, all good things or fun things can come to an end if they're toxic, right? If there's some level of toxicity there. So I think, um, you know, always keeping in mind that, you know, you don't have to commit to everything that's, well, let me just say it this way. I think it's great to have fun, but when you see something that is toxic entering your life and potentially has the ability to have influence and cause harm, then you have to make, I think, a wise sort of decision about whether or not that fun is necessary in that way yes find it somewhere else yeah because like mushrooms it might poison you (laughs) no does that extend no yeah no it's good okay okay. so overall good advice um next we're moving to instagram this one just melted my heart 
Um, it's a quote from oh. Brendan Fraser, who I don't know if you guys were fans of his way back in the day, The Mummy and Ceno Man, all of those things. Uh, he had uh, a lot. Uh, well, we can go into these later, but a lot of issues in Hollywood, some uh, abuse, and then he was blackballed. But um, in the past year or so, he's had a resurgence um, and a show called, I believe, The Whale uh, won some awards at Venice Film Festival. And he's been making the media circuits again and just a precious human. Um, but here is a quote from Brendan Fraser. Oh, gosh, not to skew your good or bad advice. It's, oh, sometimes uh, I do that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, do um, anyway, um, here's a quote from Brendan Fraser. Um, as a young man, I prayed for success. Now I just pray to be worthy of it. Kind of advice, but good or bad advice about maybe how to age? Woods, thoughts? Um, <clears throat> sorry. Oh my God, you're crying <laughs> over Brendan Fraser. I agree. All of it. I completely agree. It's a precious human. I, I assume that that means great advice. Sure. I guess I feel bad I didn't have an opinion on Mr. Fraser before now, uh, I, um, worthy of success is such an interesting idea. Um, mm. I think you should just maybe be able to feel like you're worthy whether or not you're experiencing success. Um, but I would hate to sort of, um, judge this man's reframe for himself that it feels like he's giving sort of less advice and more sort of his own perspective. Yeah. And so I'll reserve judgment and just hope that he feels maybe worthy of good things, whether or not he's successful. Yeah. I mean, don't we all wish that for Brendan Fraser? Gosh, I agree. <laughs> so good advice, especially if it works for him. Sesson? Um, oh my gosh, I, you're going to say bad advice, aren't you? It's okay. I, if you do. I'm not. I think I'm having a hard time answering if it's good or bad advice. I think okay. I'm like trying to really think about this idea of being worthy of success mm. um, and what that means to be worthy of success. So not I think everybody... kind of what if he gets success, he can carry himself well through the, you know, Hollywood success, you know, type of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like this idea, like, do I deserve it, right? Like, is mm -hmm. the, the truth is not everybody becomes successful through hard work. And, yeah. um, you know, maybe that's what he was meaning, that he works hard for it. It's such a good <laughs> I think there's some people who really, you know, have earned success with, through hard work, dedication, you know, respect of others and really put in the time and effort and other people who inherit it. Yeah, um, and so when I think about like worthy of success, I think if you worked hard for it, then I think it's just yeah. I think feeling worthy of it should be something that you should feel like. I think anybody who works hard for their success should feel like they're deserving of it. So I hope he does. If he's worked hard, I hope he can really embrace that and really relish in that effort and that time he's dedicated. Yes, really, really good point. So like if you, including Brendan Fraser, have success, hopefully you can appreciate the success and have be able to like revel in it. We gave advice to him and other people. <laughs> we turned it. Good job, Sesson. And was uh, fantastic. All right, last but certainly not least from Dr. Emily Ann Holt. Um, Pop psychology, I hate. No one will love you until you learn to love yourself. Nope. We learn to love ourselves through the love we receive from others, ideally starting with our caregivers. Surround yourself with people who love you while you learn to love yourself. 
Woods, good or bad advice? I can read I it again, too. No, you don't need to. I yeah. actually really love that advice because I actually really uh, dislike the advice that I don't think is founded in too much science necessarily, although Sasson may correct me, uh, that you have to love yourself before, before you can sort of seek out, especially the advice is typically given in the context of like romantic relationships, right? No one's going to love you until you love yourself. First of all, that's not true. It's factually yep. not accurate. <laughs> like science aside, <laughs> scientific facts aside is just... <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Um, in addition to scientific facts, it's also right. scientifically not found. Right, right. Um, but also the emphasis that you shared as part of this advice about um, we learn how to love ourselves. We learn our own self-image. We learn uh, self-respect. We learn self-care from ideally starting with our first sort of foundational relationships. That is very accurate scientifically that's um not always sufficient for going on to then have healthy romantic relationships in the future however it is necessary for all humans to be able to feel like um they can love themselves and like they are valuable and that they have worth to have other people believe that about them too it's just sort of a key piece of that process and i never like the second implied meaning of the advice that this person's countering, which is that you can't learn how to love yourself if you don't already do that. And you just, therefore, would you going to just be ostracized forever? Like if I don't figure out what's best about me and just feel fully confident, I can't go out into the world. Like that's, most people are just never like that. And when you But also imagine being partnered with somebody who never questions uh, anything and never needs input from the outside or like yeah. reinforced like value like also, that would be a challenging I, person to be partnered with right. well and when you think about something like i mean my brain always goes a little bit more clinical but when you're thinking about something like depression for example that can strongly impact your self-image your confidence your motivation yeah. it's cognitively and emotionally um of enormous weight uh and sometimes the only thing that we should be doing for people experiencing that is to love them regardless we don't wait for them to come out of it and to find their own self-esteem again before we are willing to love them and wrap yeah. around them yeah exactly so i really like this advice sarah loves it uh exclamation points after it including her beautiful monologue uh sesson <laughs> I mean, I feel like we'd have to rename the show if we didn't love this. <laughs> oh, okay, like, good. I was so afraid she was going to come in and correct me. Like, oh, actually. I think, no, right? Actually, love is bad. Bad. I don't know that there's anything to disagree with here. I completely support the notion. I think it's one of those things where there, I don't know at what point this happened, but like there's a growing movement of people I think who do research who you know have a platform who talk about like love grows from within kind of thing right like there's that toxic I think yeah. it's on some level very toxic to be like empower yourself to love yourself like love starts mm -hmm. from within like all of this like and you hear this from some pretty big names I'm not going to name the names so you know <laughs> but there's some you know some names out there um who have really very large followings as well mm -hmm. right um who mm -hmm. on one level do really great interesting research but i think some of the larger messages that promote around this idea that you have to sort of 
you know, love yourself, that codependence. I, there's a lot of issue that I have with this idea that you have to look inward first. Like all the, like you said, um, Sarah, the literature talks about how you learn to love yourself. And that is through the care and love of others. And of course, there are going to be people who also name sort of some exceptions, right? Like some people who grow up in really, really toxic life, right? Like with toxic, yeah, yeah, deprived of perfection, of secure attachments, Mm -hmm. go on to be phenomenal, loving, you know, securely attached human beings. But that's when you look at their full story, you always find people who care along the way. Uh, right. Yeah. Along you hear about teachers who loved and supported and believed in them. Um, so, you know, other community members. Right. And so, you know, we can always name exceptions in anything too, right? right. If you're like I had nobody, literally, I only did it through my own sort of self-exploration, but the rule, right. Is always, you find that in caregivers. I mean, there's um, decades of research to show for it. So it's good in theory, right? Love yourselves because you don't want to have to count on other people to do that work for you. But it's like, that's just not how the human condition works. So, um, good advice. Good advice. All around good advice for a more advice. Please check out uh, Patreon page. And as always, thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get us on those social medias about relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.